0: Welcome to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Taking advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembered the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Most gracious Father, as we look once again to your word. I ask that you would add your blessing to this reading of your word, and that by your spirit you would fill my mouth with words of life, that we all together might be strengthened in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for just a second, we we remember these words from the beginning of this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Obviously, the key word there is comfort. It's said about 50 times, it seemed like, in those few verses. And as we we read that and and, and think back, we remember that God is the source of our comfort, that, that the suffering and comfort of the Christian is attached to the suffering and comfort of Jesus, and that the suffering and comfort of Christians is shared by other Christians. And so as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 16, Paul applies these ideas of, of the God who comforts to his relationship with the Corinthians. So these first couple of verses, these first three verses, are kind of a transition from what he has just said to what he's about to say. Make room in your hearts for us. He, he said the same thing back in chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. You are not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Paul said our heart was open you, to you. You widen your heart to us. Now, we have to remember the context of what's going on here. Paul's not wanting to just be held in high esteem for the sake of being held in high esteem by the Corinthians. There was this conflict in the church church, between himself and and the other true apostles and his partners in ministry and, and this group called the super apostles. There was this conflict that existed between them. And so when Paul is, is wanting to be welcomed and, and, and wanting to be received and, and wanting their hearts open wide to him, it's not just because he wants to be liked. It's because he sees a fundamental difference in his message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ and the message of these super apostles. And as we've talked about in previous sections in Corinthians, Paul understood that to reject me and my message is to reject Christ. So this isn't about Paul commending himself. This isn't about Paul trying to, to be you know, loved by the Corinthians for the sake of being loved by the Corinthians, but because he understood they're rejecting me because they're rejecting the gospel that I taught them. That was the issue. That's why he wanted them to widen their hearts to him and the other, his other partners in ministry. Because they weren't actually guilty of the things that these super apostles were accused of. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I didn't say this to condemn you. For I said before that you were in our hearts to die together and live together. Paul, say, Paul, Paul's reminding them that the stuff we've been accused of, it just didn't happen. We didn't wrong anybody. We haven't corrupted anybody with this gospel of grace. We've announced what is true from the beginning. We've announced the plan of salvation that God set forth before the foundations of the world. We've announced that the Messiah has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, fulfilling all of the promises. That's not a corruption of people. That's a proclamation of what is actually true, calling them out of their pursuit of righteousness through works and into the grace of Jesus Christ. We've not wronged you. We've not corrupted you. We're not writing this to condemn you. Our heart is for you. We'll die and live with you. We see Paul's pastoral heart here. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. About the Corinthians, we're going to find out because of how they had responded when he wrote this hard letter. Remember, what we call 2 Corinthians is is at least the fourth letter that he wrote, and and the one prior to this was was pretty harsh, because because they were were ignoring him and and wandering off into all kinds of other things and and into all kinds of sin, And, and so he was concerned about how that was received. But now he's filled with comfort, Now in in his affliction, he's overflowing with joy. And then in verse 5, he, he kind of picks back up the story that, that got interrupted by this long personal defense that started back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 when he told us that, that, that he was grieved because Titus didn't show up in Macedonia or, or in Troas like he was supposed to. And so he went on to Macedonia. And that was, that was what had disrupted Paul's travel plans and, and part of what had frustrated the Corinthians so much. And they started accusing him of of not being a man of his word and and all of these things. He was wanting to hear from Titus. And so he picks that back up in verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, remember, he had gone to Macedonia because even though a door was open for gospel ministry in Troas, his heart, his spirit was troubled because he didn't find Titus there like he was supposed to. So he goes back to that story now, you know, several chapters later. Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. And and this is really what I want us to to zoom in on for a little bit. Because I think this idea of, of God comforting his people is what he's driving at through this whole section. God comforts the downcast. God comforts his people because this is who he has always been. Rob read Isaiah 40 for us earlier. We saying comfort, comfort now my people That that is written based on Isaiah 40. And, and and what is that chapter? It's this chapter that's given in the midst of the exile, in the midst of the suffering of the people of God, reminding them that God will send the comforter, that he will be the one who comforts them in their sorrow, that he will be the one who comforts them in their humiliation, that he will be the one who comforts them in their sin, in their failure, in their brokenness, in their exile. It is God God, and no one else who will come to comfort us sinners. That's been the plan all along. This is who God has always been. We go all the way back to the garden. What happened? Don't eat of the tree. They eat of the tree. They hide. God shows up. He asks some questions, and then he clothes them. Yes, they have to deal with the consequences of their sin, but he clothes them. He gives them what they now need. He comes to them in their sin and loves them and comforts them. This is who God has always been. This is who God will always be. God comforts his people because that's who he has always been. And that's what his plan has always been. God comforts his people also because he has the tools to do so. Brent read for Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they what? They comfort me. They comfort me. Sometimes we read that, we hear rod and staff, we immediately think discipline and we're like, oh. I must have really messed up in the valley of the shadow of death because God had to get out his rod and his staff and get me back in line. I'm not saying that the discipline of God, that there isn't some comfort that comes with this because it restores us back to it. But notice what the psalmist says. Notice what David says right there. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear any evil for you are with me presence of God with him your rod and your staff they comfort me he's not I don't think at that point talking about discipline he's not talking about God coming in vengeance because he's in the valley of the shadow he's talking about what we sang earlier though you pass through the waters I will be with you The flames, they will not consume you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not forsaking you. I'm with you, and I'm here to comfort you, and I have the tools to do it. Because the rod and the staff, while they often can be a metaphor for discipline, they were also the tools that the shepherd used to defend the sheep, to to, to take out wolves. They were very skilled with these as offensive weapons or defensive weapons for the protection of the sheep. God knows how to comfort us when we are downcast. He has the tools to do this. He does so also, He comforts us because He became like us. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The word lowly there in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 is the same word for downcast in 2 Corinthians 7. Jesus is saying, I was downcast. That's why I can comfort you. I've been there. Remember that passage in Hebrews that we go back to so often that He was made like us yet without... that we have a high priest who's been tempted in every way yet without sin. So He's sympathetic. So He knows what we're going through. So He knows where we've been. So He knows how to comfort us. He knows how to comfort us. He comforts us when we're downcast, because he himself was downcast. And so he says here, you take my yoke and learn from me. Learn the comfort of walking with my Father. Learn the comfort of knowing the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies. Yoke yourself to him. Yoke yourself. To me, Jesus says. Paul understood that this is who his God is. This is who our God is. Many of you I know are here this morning and you're downcast. You're broken. You're at a low place for any number of reasons. Do you understand? Do you know that your God is the God who comforts the downcast? Who comes to you in that low place and lifts your burden and gives you his? Because he also was downcast. And he knows where you are. And he has the tools to comfort you. And that's the kind of God that he is. So Paul tells us that that this is what God did. The God who comforts the downcast comforted us. And then in it by two ways: by the coming of Titus and by the repentance of the Corinthians. The coming of Titus is there's comfort there because Titus came, and, 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 and there's joy and there's comfort. There's real comfort in Christian fellowship because true Christian fellowship is centered on the Christ in whom we are united. This is why, over and over and over, we're called to, to declare the gospel to one another, to, to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to encourage one another. And all the day, as you see, all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's comfort that is found in Christian fellowship. There's there's comfort that is found when we gather with one another and we know everybody in this room needs Jesus. And I don't have to be scared of needing Jesus. Everybody in this room needs to be comforted. I don't have to feel like like I'm a failure or, or a screw up in some way because I need to be comforted. These are people, or should be, that understand the need to be comforted. And there's real fellowship, there's real joy, there's real comfort found there. Because it may be the case that that I come to you at a low place and you happen to be at a place where you, your faith is strong and you can look at me and say, Jesus will see you through. It will be okay. He will not forsake you. Or the roles may be reversed. You may come to me in a low place, and and, and by God's grace, I might be in a place of strength where I can look at you and with all the confidence in the world can say to you, no, 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 Jesus will see you through. He will comfort you. He will not abandon you. It will be okay in Him. He is working all things things together for good for those he has called according to his purpose. Paul found real comfort in the Christian fellowship that he had with Titus. But part of that comfort also came from the news that Titus brought. This news of repentance that that we see announced and, and, and unpacked in verses 7 through 13 that the Corinthians really did repent. In verses 7 through 9, we see Paul's, Paul's pastoral heart for them. He, he understood that this letter that he wrote, that it was a severe letter. We, we, we've talked about how, how he wrote this letter, and he says he wrote it in anguish of heart and, and, he, and with tears. He, he wasn't excited about confrontation. We, we say all the time, like, we hear people say, I'm just not into confrontation. Or you'll hear somebody say, I I, I don't like a confrontation, but I'm willing to do it. You know what? No one likes confrontation. If you like a confrontation, there's a problem. You're a little bit of a psychopath. (laughs) If you're like, you know what I want to do? I just want to go and get all up in people's grills and be just a, just go after people. No, there's a problem. Get off Facebook. Get off social media, if that's how, if that's what it's there for you for, and that's what it's there for a lot of people. It's not that Paul liked writing this hard stuff to people. It's not that he liked having to to call people to repentance. Sometimes preachers get get so excited, it it seems, and I wish it weren't the case, but it seems like it happens in our tradition some. Like, we get so excited about, like, saying something hardcore about the law and, like, really making people feel like trash. And we're just like, oh, that was bold for the Lord. No, you're probably just being mean. Paul didn't enjoy this. It grieved him. Why did it grieve him? Because he knew that they were grieved. What was his comfort? Not, he was like, oh, well, I stood up for the truth. Sometimes the truth hurts. No, shut up with stuff like that. Yes, I get it. Sometimes the truth does hurt, but that's not what we revel in. It should grieve us when we, when we have to deal directly and, and hardly with each other. Like that. We'll have to sometimes. We'll have to look at each other and say, hey, you're really on a line. But we don't rejoice my heart. stood for the truth. Paul grieved over this. but he found joy, not because he stood for the truth, but because they were grieved into repenting. That was his joy. That was his joy. They were grieved into repenting. And then in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, he, he unpacks the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. And the difference, I, I want to be clear, that the difference here is not determined by pain or regret, by sadness or consequences or sadness over consequences. It's not, it's not determined by, by avoidance of, of similar actions, of admission of guilt or foolishness. None of those things are what, the, what distinguish between godly and worldly grief. Uh, one commentator, Scott Hafman, quoting another commentator, who was quoting another commentator, wrote this. Three guys said it, right? So it's got to be good. Recognition of sin by itself is not repentance. It may be defiance. Nor is sorrow for sin repentance if it be alone in the mind. It may be remorse or despair. Abandonment of sin by itself may be no more than prudence. You you might stop sinning simply because you know, like, you know what? Life's just going to work better if I stop doing this jerk thing. And that's not repentance, necessarily. All of that can be worldly sorrow. Paul gives two clues to, to distinguish what the difference is between worldly and godly sorrow. First, we see as he writes, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So the first thing we notice is that that there's a difference in in, in the ultimate outcome of these two realities. (laughs) Worldly grief leads to death. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that is. Godly grief, though, this is what it produces in us. Repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, repentance is not just turning from sin. Oftentimes, repentance is described that way. You turn from sin. It's a turning around. Well, here's the thing. It matters what you turn to. See, we're really good at turning from one sin to another one. It's really easy to turn from from a sin that people don't like and are going to give you grief about to a sin that people don't mind. That, that, that's very simple. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is turning from sin to Jesus, where you find forgiveness. One author describes, or, or defines repentance with the, the acronym CAR. It's confessing your sin, accepting the grace that you have in Jesus, and requesting the grace to change. That's repentance. It's turning from sin to Jesus, who is your righteousness. Turning from sin to Jesus, who is your salvation. Turning from sin to Jesus, in whom you have forgiveness. And restoration and redemption. And then living in Him with the grace He provides by the working of His Spirit in you in righteousness. That's what repentance is. It centers not on what you do with your sin and looking more and more at your sin. It centers on Jesus. There's a book called Rejoicing in Christ by Michael Reeves that if I could afford it, I would buy everybody here a copy because it's absolutely phenomenal. It's like 100 pages of, of solid gold. And at one point, I'm going to read a, a longer section. He writes this. He's talking about looking to Jesus first, looking at sin. He said, it, it means that before anything else, it matters where we look. Before anything else, it matters what fills our vision. For whatever it is that occupies our attention, or to use Jesus' words, whatever it is that remains in us, that will steer and shape our every thought, motive, and action. You are what you see. Michel Foucault noticed this when he was looking at the use of the confessional in Roman Catholicism. After the Reformation of the 16th century, as Rome sought to put its house in order, the practice of confessing your sins to a priest became ever more strongly encouraged. Through acknowledging and confessing their sinfulness, it was thought people would be spurred on to deeper holiness. What actually happened, Foucault observed, was that people only came to identify themselves more strongly as sinners. Sure, the priest had uttered his absolution, but the whole practice put the focus on the sin being confessed. Through that prolonged look, they bound themselves tighter to the very things they sought to escape. None of that is to suggest that self-examination of self is a bad thing, of course. It is simply that a focus on self is not the secret of godliness. Life, righteousness, holiness, and redemption are found in Jesus and found by those and only those who look to him. Perhaps I should be clearer. It is not that we look, get some sense of what Christ is like, and then go away and strain to make ourselves similar. We become like him through the very looking. The very sight of him is a transforming thing. For now, contemplating him by faith, we begin to be transformed into his likeness. But so potent is his glory that when we clap our eyes upon him physically at his second coming, then we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. See, repentance isn't looking deeper and deeper and self-examining more and more, trying to root out more and more sin and find every single picadillo that you can possibly get rid of. It's turning from your sin and yourself and the world and fixing your eyes on Jesus and so being transformed looking at Him in His glory on the cross, dead for you, at the empty tomb, risen for you, and being transformed from one glory to another, even as you gaze on His glory. That's repentance. That's what godly sorrow leads us to. To look at Jesus more. Not just to look at our sin more. But to look at the one who can actually do something about it. And here's the joy. Here, 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 if, if that's already enough, it's, it's salvation without regret. This is a place where, where I'm boggled by this word regret. Because I think, and I'll be bold, and I'll agree with men much smarter than me and women much smarter than me. I think this is a lousy translation. And, and, and I can prove this, because if you read a bunch of different translations, no one knows where to put regret, and so it's in different places in this sentence. Here's the problem. The word for regret is only used twice in the New Testament, here and in Romans eleven twenty nine, where it's translated as irrevocable in reference to the promises, the salvation of God, his calling His promises are irrevocable. Here's what I think Paul is saying. Godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation that is irrevocable. You don't lose it. That's one of the key differences between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to something that's irrevocable because the promises of God are irrevocable. Worldly sorrow leads to something that can be taken away as quick as it was found. It can be gone tomorrow if you mess up again. You can be right back on the list. Godly sorrow leads to salvation in Christ, a salvation that says, yes, you're not supposed to sin, but if anyone does, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for your sin. You're not supposed to sin, but if you do, it's paid for. You're not supposed to sin, but if you do, your salvation is irrevocable. You're not supposed to sin, but if you do, you still have Jesus. That's what godly sorrow produces in us. The other distinctions that we can make come from simply what they're named. Worldly grief, Worldly sorrow. Godly grief, worldly sorrow. Worldly grief laments our offense of the world and seeks to appease the world on its terms that we might not lose it. That we might not lose the world and what it offers. That's what worldly sorrow produces in us. We're sorry that we've offended the world. we have sorry that we've crossed the lines of whatever the issue of the day is. We're sorry. And, and, and we'll, we'll do whatever it takes to make amends based on your terms. See, see, the problem is the one that we think we've offended gets to set the terms of how we get out of that offense. And so worldly sorrow is sorry that we've, that we, that we've offended the world and looks to the world for how it is that we get out of that offense because we're scared of losing the good graces of the world. Godly sorrow laments our offense of God and seeks Christ because of all that the Father has given him, he will lose none. That's the difference. The one we think we've offended sets the terms for dealing with the offense. The world asks for a pound of flesh, promising something it can't provide. God gave his son to deal with our sin because he knew we couldn't handle it ourselves. That's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Whoever it is that you see that you've offended, that's who sets the terms. The terms that God has set are look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself. And look to Jesus. And you get a salvation that is irrevocable. It won't be taken away. It can't be taken away. Because it's secured by the blood of Christ. We will go to the one we think we have offended. We will go on their terms and we will go for what they offer. All the world offers is death. And so if we go on their terms because we think we've offended them, that's all we'll get. What Christ offers is life, salvation that's irrevocable. And when we go on his terms, Which is in faith? That's what we get. But it starts with seeing that the one that we have offended is God Himself. And He's the one that sets the terms. We sang this this truth earlier. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And is Jesus our Messiah? Hold forever those he loves. He does. Does God intend to dwell again with us? He does. That's what comforts Paul here. As we read on through, besides our comfort, we rejoice still more because Titus was built up by this, because he saw their true character, and and he just goes on about the confidence. I'm proud of you. I'm confident in your obedience. What is all of this? What is driving this joy in Paul? It's this. The comfort Paul received was the assurance from God who comforts the downcast that the Corinthians were, in fact, his. His that Paul had preached the gospel and God had brought forth the fruit of life and salvation for the Corinthians. And so Paul was comforted and Paul was filled with joy because what he was seeing in the Corinthians was that this overwhelming grace of the gospel was true that God had not revoked his salvation for the Corinthians because they had messed up again. But he restored them once again because the salvation that was theirs was irrevocable. How does God comfort the downcast? In myriad ways. But chiefly, through the offering of his son, who gives to those in need a salvation that is irrevocable. That is your comfort. That is your comfort in your hours of darkness. That is your comfort in the face of your sin. That is your comfort in fear. That whatever it is you've done, whatever it is you're facing, whatever valley of the shadow of death that you're walking through, is not God revoking his salvation of you. It's not. Does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? He does. He does. Be comforted in the gospel. Let's break Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the comfort that Paul saw in the Corinthians. We thank you for the comfort that we have because you are a God who comforts the downcast. We thank you for the comfort that we have because Jesus whom you sent was downcast himself and so knows how to comfort us. And because Jesus whom you sent lived and died and rose again, securing salvation for us so that it's irrevocable. We admit, Father, that we often fear this world and losing it. That we often experience uh, worldly sorrow in many ways. Teach us, Father, by Your Spirit, godly sorrow that life may be offered instead of death and life that is irrevocable. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.